Please take your Bibles and turn to the first book of the Bible, to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, we started last Sunday night a series on what we call covenant theology. Um, Covenant theology is not some unimportant issue. Uh, Covenant theology, I think, gets to the very heart of the gospel. And last Sunday night, we started by looking at the covenant of redemption. Uh, Tonight, we are going to look at the covenant of works. So Genesis chapter 2. Uh, We'll read just three verses, verses 15, 16, and 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. What would you all think if I said to you, you are saved by works? Now before you think to yourself, if I'm saved by works, I'm doomed. There's no way that that I've been good enough to, to ever make myself acceptable to God. Before you think that, let me assure you that the works are not your works, but they are the works of someone else. And, and this gets to the very heart of what we call the covenant of works. The covenant of works gets to the very issue of the doctrine of justification, the, the very heart of our right standing before God. I, I strongly believe that to, to misunderstand or to reject the covenant of works is to misunderstand the gospel. Several years ago, I think it was about two decades ago, R.C. Sproul, who is now with the Lord, R.C. Sproul said this. He said, at the heart of this question of justification is the rejection of what is called the covenant of works. If we take away the covenant of works, we take away the act of obedience of Jesus. If we take away the act of obedience of Jesus, we take away the imputation of his righteousness to us. If we take away the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us, we take away justification by faith alone. If we take away justification by faith alone, we take away the gospel. And if we take away the gospel, we are left in our sins. I agree with Sproul. This is no mere side issue. This isn't like, you know, what's your view of the millennium? Uh, this, this doctrine, this covenant of works gets to the very heart of the gospel. So tonight, we, we want to consider the covenant of works by asking three questions. Number one, what is the covenant of works? Number two, does the Bible support the covenant of works? Number three, how does the covenant of works apply to me? So what is it? Is it biblical? And how does it apply to me? Now, children, remember, a covenant is a relationship. We talked about this last Sunday night. It's a a legally binding relationship that is enforced by God. Now, last week, again, we looked at the covenant of redemption, and, and we saw that the covenant of redemption is somewhat unique 
because it is a covenant that does not include human beings. The, the covenant of redemption is a covenant within the Trinity. It's a covenant between the three persons of the Trinity. And, and if you can remember what it was last Sunday night that we looked at, the, the Father appoints the Son as the Redeemer. The, the Son voluntarily agrees to come to earth and be our Redeemer. And the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ to the elect. The covenant of works, however, which we're going to look at tonight, does include human beings. And I think the, the best definition, the best way to understand the covenant of works is what the Westminster Confession of Faith says about it in chapter 7. And you'll see it if you have your sermon outline in front of you. It says, the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. That's the covenant of works. There are three parts to it. First of all, life was promised to Adam. What kind of life? Eternal life. If Adam kept the covenant of works, he would live forever. Second, life was promised to Adam and to his posterity. That, that means all of Adam's descendants. Adam acted as a representative. Some theologians say he was a, a head. He was a federal head for all who would come after him. That includes all of us here tonight. Adam was our representative. And, and third, life was promised upon, notice, condition of perfect and personal obedience. In order to earn eternal life, Adam had to offer perfect obedience to God's commands. That is the covenant of works. Now, if you do any reading in Reformed theology before, and you maybe do it in the future, you might come across two different phrases. There is the phrase, the covenant of works and the covenant of life. Uh, in, in fact, that's the phrase that our Belgian confession uses. It calls it the covenant of life. Some call this covenant the covenant of works. Some call it the covenant of life. There's really no essential difference between the two. Uh, they're speaking of the same thing. The, the only difference is that the phrase covenant of works focuses on the stipulations. In other words, Adam had to work. He had to offer God perfect obedience. The phrase covenant of life focuses on the reward. If, if Adam had been obedient, he would have received life. So the answer is the first question. What is the covenant of works. There's a second question, very important question. Does the Bible support the covenant of works? Now you might say, you, you know, you just, you just told me what some document from the 17th century said. You, you just told me what a few dozen guys who wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith came up with, but what does the Bible say? Now that's the fundamental issue. We are we are Christians who focus on the Word of God. While we believe that documents like the Westminster and the Belgic and the Heidelberg Catechism are faithful summaries of the Bible, at the end of the day, that's what they are. They are summaries of the Bible. They are written by men, and they are subservient to the Word of God. And so we must always turn to Scripture, first and foremost, to see if what we believe is found in the Word of God. Now, some people reject the covenant of works because they say it's not found in Scripture. It's kind of like I said to you last week. You, you can grab any 
gigantic Bible concordance that you want and you will never find that phrase, the covenant of redemption in it. And you also won't find the phrase, the covenant of works. But, but you will find the concept in Scripture. And so I want you to, if you have your Bible, we're going to turn to a few places. First of all, take your Bible and go to the Old Testament prophet Hosea. Hosea chapter 6. If you're using the Pew Bible, Hosea can be hard to find, so it's page 754. Hosea 6, page 754 in the Pew Bible. If you're familiar with the book of Hosea, uh, you might know that Hosea was written to highlight a very dark period in Israel's life. It was written to highlight the, the spiritual adultery of God's people. God's people had, in a sense, cheated on God over and over and over. They'd followed after false gods instead of the one true God. And now notice what Hosea 6 verse 7 says. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. So there's a, there's a parallel here, right? There's a, there's a parallel between Adam and Israel. And, and God says that, that both of them, both Adam and Israel, have transgressed the covenant. Now what covenant did Israel transgress? Most scholars believe that what's in view here is what we call the Mosaic Covenant. And, and specifically, I want you to think of something that happened in Exodus chapter 24. And so, take your Bibles again and go back to the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 24. At this point in Exodus, Israel's been brought out of Egypt. Children, you remember that um, God's people were in Egypt for a really long time. They were slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. It was a horrible, horrible, brutally oppressive time for God's people. But eventually, God sent 10 plagues upon Egypt. And when Pharaoh and his army chased after Israel, you remember that God drowned Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. And so here is Israel. They've been taken out of Egypt, released from bondage, set free from slavery. And on Mount Sinai, they've entered into a covenant with God. Look at verse 1 of Exodus 24. Then God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, notice, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half, the, half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, here's that phrase again, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So twice Israel says the same thing. Twice, Israel says, 
all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We'll do it all. We'll keep all the commands. And and then Moses throws blood on the people to confirm the covenant that they have just made. But here's the question. Children, you know your Old Testaments, right? Did Israel do it? Did Israel do all the commands that God had given them? No. They transgressed that covenant. And and that's what Hosea 6 is reminding us here, that Israel failed to keep that Mosaic covenant. In the same way, Hosea 6 also says that Adam transgressed a covenant. It, It uses that exact word, leading many scholars to understand that Adam, in the Garden of Eden, was in a covenant relationship with God. So there's one passage to support the covenant of works. Another passage to look at is in the New Testament. So go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Paul is setting up a parallel here and a contrast between Adam and Jesus. As far as the, the parallel, both Adam and Jesus were representatives. Adam represented all of mankind who would come after him. And, and Jesus represented all that the Father had given to him. As far as the contrast, one of them failed, one of them succeeded. Look at verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, that's talking about Adam, So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. He's talking about Jesus. Paul is saying that what Adam failed to do, Jesus did. And and what did Adam fail to do? What did Adam not do? Very simply, he failed to offer God the perfect obedience that the covenant of works required. Jesus, however, and we're thankful for this, if we are Christians, Jesus perfectly kept the covenant of works. He perfectly obeyed all of God's commands and his perfect righteousness is credited to all who believe in him. This is why we can sleep at night. Not only because we know God is on his throne, but also because we know that it's not up to us to earn our way to heaven. We rest in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So Hosea 6 tells us that Adam transgressed the covenant. Romans 5 tells us that that Adam failed to earn righteousness due to his disobedience. Again, there was a covenant relationship between God and Adam. And the other passage we want to look at is the one I just read a moment ago, and that's Genesis 2. So if you go back to Genesis 2, um, when you look at this chapter, it becomes pretty clear that there is a covenantal structure here. In my, in my opinion, and it may not count for much, but in my opinion, it's, it's really hard to miss the covenantal nature of Genesis 2. And I'm going to give you three reasons why 
Genesis 2 shows us that there was a covenant between God and Adam in the garden. Now, eventually we're going to get to the so what part. So, so please don't sit there thinking I'm just you know, pumping you with head knowledge. We're, we're going to get to why this is important. But, but I want you to see foundationally why we say this chapter is a covenantal chapter. Three reasons. Number one, the first reason is that God's covenantal name is used in this chapter. If, if I were to give you a, a crash course on Hebrew, and if you were all to take a Hebrew Bible and you were to read Genesis 1-1 through chapter 2, verse 3 in the original language in Hebrew, you would notice that every time God is referenced, it's the Hebrew word Elohim, translated as God. But very interestingly, when we get to chapter 2, verse 4, there's a sudden change. Now, for the first time, God's covenant name is used. Yahweh, Lord, L-O-R-D in all capitals, is used starting in chapter 2, verse 4. And listen to this. It's also used in verse 5, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, verse 15, verse 16, verse 18, verse 19, verse 21, and verse 22. You get the point, right? God's covenant name now all of a sudden, boom, comes to the foreground. And so this is the first indication that that this is a covenant between God and Adam. The covenantal name Yahweh is used all throughout this chapter. The second reason that Genesis 2 is a covenant is because it contains covenantal conditions. You, You look at this chapter, you'll notice that there are conditions or obligations or demands found in this passage. The, the one we're most familiar with is the one in verse 16 where, where it says, the Lord God commanded the man and, and said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. We're, we're familiar with that, right? God says to Adam, Adam, you're free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you are not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So that's the first condition, that's the first demand, but that's only part of it. If if you look back at verse 15, you'll notice something else. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. This is interesting to me. Not not only does God say to Adam, don't do this, but, but he also says to Adam, do this. And and this is true with all of God's commands. Often when we think of of God's commands and God's law, we we think of things God tells us not to do. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But there's also the other aspect of God's law where he is commanding it to positively do something. And so he says to Adam, not only are you not to eat from this tree, but you are also to work the garden and to keep it Notice those two words. First word is the word work. Adam was to work the garden. He was to cultivate the garden. And by doing this, he would be exercising dominion over all the earth, which is what God told him to do. And the second word is the word keep. The word keep could could better be translated guard or protect. 
Children, Adam had the responsibility to guard the garden, to protect the garden. And and when the serpent came in, he should have thrown him out. He should have protected the garden from that serpent. And, And so Adam was not to do this, but he also was to do this. And so we see here in this chapter this this idea of covenantal obligations, covenantal demands. And then third, there's a third reason why we can understand this is a covenant. And and that is because there are covenantal rewards and penalties here, aren't there? If if Adam did what God told him to do, if, if Adam offered to God perfect and personal obedience to these commands, he would have inherited the reward of the covenant, which was life, eternal life, symbolized in the tree of life. But he failed to do this. He broke God's command. And what would be the penalty if he broke God's command? Verse 17, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Penalty was death. Physical death, spiritual death, eternal death. So you put all of this together, and and we can say, yeah, the phrase covenant of works is not found in the Bible, but neither is the Trinity. That phrase, that word is not found in the Bible. We put all of this together. Hosea speaks of Adam transgressing the covenant. Paul in Romans 5 shows us that, that both Adam and Jesus were covenantal heads or covenantal representatives. And that Jesus did what Adam failed to do, namely perfectly obey God's law and and earn righteousness for God's people. And then Genesis 2, for a number of reasons, makes it clear that this is a covenant between God and Adam, a covenant that we call the covenant of works. But there's a third question, very important question. And the third question is, how does the covenant of works apply to me? This is the so what. And, and this is a very critical question. We, we don't study doctrine just for the sake of doctrine. We, we study doctrine so that we can then take that doctrine and see how it relates to us. And again, as I said to you at the very beginning of the sermon, this gets to the heart of the gospel. We miss this. We miss the gospel in a sense. And so let me give you three ways that the covenant of works applies to you. Number one, the covenant of works helps us to understand our natural condition before God. Think back to Romans 5 that we read a moment ago. And one of the verses we didn't read, Romans 5.12, says this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Adam was our federal head. Adam was our representative. And and what he did in the Garden of Eden was not just something that happened thousands of years ago and has no application to us, has no bearing on our lives. Adam's fall, Adam's breaking of the covenant of works had far-reaching implications and consequences for every one of us. When he sinned, 
he plunged the entire human race into sin. Now you might say, well, I don't like that. I don't think that's fair. I wasn't there in the Garden of Eden when he did that. If I had been there, I would have told him, don't eat the fruit. I wasn't there. I wasn't there breaking the covenant of works with Adam in the garden. How can God hold me accountable for that? Well, if you don't like that, you're going to have to say the same thing when it comes to the work of Jesus. You weren't there when he was obeying all of God's commands. You weren't there on the cross when he was paying the penalty for all of your sins. You certainly don't want to say that. The Bible is clear that Adam acted as our federal head. He acted as our representative. And when he sinned, he plunged this entire world into sin. And the covenant of works reminds us of why the world is the way it is today. It reminds us that when Adam sinned, it affected all of us. You've heard the old saying before, in Adam's fall sinned we all. This is what we confess in our Reformed confessions. For example, the the Belgian Confession of Faith in Article 15 says we believe that by the disobedience of Adam, original sin has been spread through the whole human race. It is a corruption of all nature, an inherited depravity which even affects small infants in their mother's womb and the root which produces in man every sort of sin. Heidelberg Catechism asks the question, where does man's corrupt nature come from? Here's the answer from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve in paradise. This fall has so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in sin. Because of Adam's sin, because of his failure to keep the covenant of works, I am by nature a sinner. Why do, why do we see evil and violence in our world today? Why do, why do we see all this moral atrocity? Is it, is it just because people have bad examples? If their parents were better, we would, they wouldn't do this? Is it, is it because the, the education system has failed them? No, we can trace this back to Adam's failure to keep the covenant of works. And so the covenant of works helps us to understand that, that by nature we are sinners. Secondly, the covenant of works teaches us that God doesn't grade on a curve. God does not grade on a curve. Every one of us in this room right now can think of someone who is worse than we are at least outwardly. You might be thinking of that person right now. I'm not a Hitler. I'm not a whatever. All of us can think of someone that, that, that we consider ourselves better than. Are you as bad as the guy on death row for murder? Are you as bad as the guy who physically and emotionally abuses his wife and his children? At least on the outside, you would say, no, I'm not that bad. I'm, I'm relatively better than that. I don't do those things. But when it comes to your standing before God, the Bible says it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The covenant of work says to us that, 
that, that God doesn't just want you to be better than 50% of the people out there. The covenant of works reminds us that God demands perfect and personal obedience, as the Westminster says. No slip-ups, no mistakes, no stumbles, perfection. It's Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. God demands perfect righteousness. If we don't have that, if we don't have that, we deserve eternal death. Now the first two practical applications of the covenant works aren't very encouraging. I'm a sinner who sins. God demands perfection from me and I can't offer perfection. But there's a third application. And, and that is that the covenant of works points us to the one who is our righteousness before God. You, you see, this, this is what I, I really want all of us to leave here with tonight. With the understanding that, that my righteousness before God is not my filthy rags. My righteousness before God is in heaven. Seated at the right hand of his father. That is my righteousness before God. And, and the good news is that Jesus did what Adam did not. And, and this is why the, the perfect obedience of Christ is so important. That's why Sproul said in, in the quote that I gave you in the beginning of the sermon that if we, if we deny the covenant of works, we essentially lose the gospel. And we're still in our sins. See, while on earth, not only did, did Jesus take all of our sins upon himself on the cross, but, but he also earned eternal life for us by his perfect obedience. He earned righteousness for us by his perfect obedience, and that righteousness is credited to us by faith alone. I ask you tonight, what is your righteousness before God? Are you, are you hoping that it will be your, your church attendance or your upbringing or your Christian family or your Christian education or your baptism or, or one of those things? Or is it Jesus Christ? Is he your righteousness? This again is why this covenant is so critical to understand. Brothers and sisters, our Savior succeeded where Adam failed. And if there is no covenant of works, the parallel that Paul makes in Romans 5 almost makes no sense. Jesus did what Adam did not. And because of this, the, the, the liberating thing for us tonight is that we're no longer under the covenant of works. We're no longer trying to somehow earn righteousness before God. And I, I hope you see how, how liberating that is, that we rest in the finished and the perfect work of the Lord Jesus Christ who is our righteousness before the Father. And so you can see not only the covenant of redemption last week, but you can see the covenant of works this week. It gets to the very heart of the gospel. 
And next week we look at the covenant of grace and that too gets to the very center of the gospel, the good news that we hold so dear. And so you can go home tonight, Christian, and you can know for certain that Jesus Christ is your righteousness and you are secure before your Father in heaven. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity tonight to study your word. We thank you for this doctrine of the covenant of works that is a very helpful reminder to us of not only our sin and our shortcomings, but also ultimately points us to Jesus, who not only paid for our sins, but also earned for us the righteousness that we need to stand in your presence. Help us, Lord, to find joy in this tonight and to rest in what he has done for us. We pray